The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. We've been speaking about for a few weeks now, and this is on church discipline. Now, to give you a little bit of an idea where we're headed here in these next few weeks, uh, we will deal with church discipline and the last part of this passage that we'll read this morning. We'll deal with that, uh, the end of that uh, next week. Then we enter into a, a couple of messages about forgiveness. And uh, it comes appropriately after Jesus talks about church discipline, the need for forgiveness. And then right after that, when we start in the 19th chapter, we're going to talk about the permanency of marriage. And all of these things sort of fit right together because there is no place that you need forgiveness more than you do in marriage. Most of you men know that very well. We often need forgiveness. And it all falls right in line here, so it kind of gives you an idea where we're going in these next few weeks. But today we're still talking on the subject of church discipline. And as I've mentioned to you several times before as we've looked at this, that it's a very, very difficult thing to talk about. It's not really hard to understand because the scriptures are so clear about it, but it's considered to be a very controversial thing in churches, and most churches just don't talk about this today because many people don't believe that we have the right to be aggressive with the sin in the lives of church members, that what you do is your business and what I do is my business, and we have no business getting into each other's business. You understand that? That's the way most people look at this. Well, that might be all right in a work setting, and it might be all right from a political standpoint, but that is not all right when it comes to the Lord's church. You see, the church is where we do the Lord's business, and we have a, we have a guide that we are to follow that tells us how we are to conduct the Lord's business. And one of the things that it tells us to do is to watch out for the lives of other Christians, to help other Christians. And one of the things that we must do is that we must help Christians when they fall into sin. And we need to look at their lives and watch them and help them when that becomes a problem with them. Now, that's a necessary thing to do because God's work is only done through a pure church. Now, the Scripture says that God is not going to use dirty vessels. Just like you won't fix your morning coffee in a cup that's had sour milk in it and sat out overnight... You, you won't use that unless you wash it and clean it. So God does not use people in his church unless they are clean. God won't use dirty cups. So Christ wants a clean church, and to be clean, we have to guard our lives against sin, and we also have to watch out for sin in the lives of others. And when we do that properly, and when it's done in the right spirit, and when it's done according to the word of God, it's not an invasive procedure. But rather, it's something that we do in love. It's a loving action because we want everybody to be in the place where God's blessing can be upon them and God can use them. So when you join a church, you become a part of the body. The church is called the body of Christ. And the metaphor of a body is used to show us the organic nature that we have in our relationship to each other. That when there is one part of the body, a physical body, that's affected by a disease or or some kind of a physical ailment, 
Well, that affects the entire body. And, and God's telling us the very same thing about his church, that when there is a problem in the body, when there's sin in the body of Christ, that it affects the entire church. And that's what this scripture is about, what to do when sin begins to affect the entire church. Now, if you, you look at me, or look please at the scriptures in uh, Matthew 18, beginning of verse 15, we'll stand for the reading of God's word once again, if you would please. Matthew 18:15. Jesus says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church... But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Father, thank you so much for your word, and we ask you, Lord, open up our hearts with understanding today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to remind you again that this chapter is all about our relationship with God and our relationship with Christ in his kingdom. Now, this chapter explains to us how that Christ regards us as little children. In the beginning of the chapter, Jesus took a little child and brought him uh, in the midst of the disciples and sat him there. And then Jesus started to talk about the to the disciples and tell them what life is like in his kingdom. He said, let me show you something about my kingdom. And he wanted them to understand that all of them were children, that they were helpless like children, that they were dependent like children... He said you must understand that you have to be like children, that you must have that kind of humility in order to be the kind of servants that I want you to be. He said you have to be protected like children, and I will provide for you. He said you must be cared for like children, and I'll take care of everything you need. And importantly, he comes to this part, and he says you must be disciplined as children, and I will give you the discipline that you need so that you know what to do. I'll treat you as my children, just like a parent treats his children and disciplines his children. And what Jesus was showing them was how that they must be shepherds of his people. And very soon that he would go to the cross and no longer would his physical presence be with them, but he was going to leave them in charge and he was showing them how to do his work until the time that he comes again. And we have this passage for us so that we can understand what God wants us to do as we wait for the return of Jesus Christ and as we conduct his business here in his church. Well, this part of his business, and there is a lot that's involved in it in many different aspects of what God wants us to do, but this particular part of God's business is all about discipline. It's about how we behave. It's about how we handle sin in the church and how we correct sin and the sinner. Christ doesn't want us to sin in his church, and that's because his body is a holy body, and he intends for it to be presented to him as a chaste bride. 
That's another metaphor that the Scriptures use for the church. It is the bride of Christ. And so we have this Scripture in Matthew 18, among many that we have in the New Testament, that tells us what we are to do about sin and the procedures that have to be followed when sin is found in the church. Now, briefly, let me review the previous points of the message. First of all, we talked about how the church is the right place for discipline. A discipline really doesn't make sense, and it really can't be done unless we consider it in the context of the church. Now, as a church, what we do is we covenant together to teach God's Word and to uphold the truth of God's Word and also to evangelize the world for Christ, that we are a body together. And, and as we become members of this body, we have an agreement between us that we will willingly submit ourselves to the authority of leadership and also to this loving relationship that we have with one another. And the basis for that unity is Christ himself. Because we're all in him, we're expected to be like him. And if all of us are like him, then we're going to be people that are like each other. And of course, we would be able to get along. Now, being like Christ and being like others is, is really a basic equation that you learned in math when you were in school. If A equals B and, and A equal, B equals C, then A equals C. And we're to be like Christ. And when anyone steps out of that path that we're supposed to be in and becomes unlike Christ, it upsets the congruity of that equation. And that's what we're to guard against. And that's why we practice church discipline. Disciple is a part of discipline. It's a learning process. It's learning how to be conformed to the image of Christ. And when we discipline people, it's to bring them back into congruity with that equation that we are to be like Christ. Now, obviously, we don't have the ability to discipline people that are not in the church. I mean, outside of the church, we have no authority. And that's one of the very good reasons that you need to be a member of the Lord's church. And that is because you need to be held accountable. You need accountability in your life. And if you don't have that, you're more likely to wander off and to get into sin. So we talked about that particular aspect. Discipline takes place in God's church. Secondly, we talked about the restoration part of discipline, that that is really the purpose of it. It is to restore people back to the fellowship in God's church and to the, the right relationship that we're to have with other believers in Christ. Now, we have no other purpose than this. Fellowship is broken by sin. And we all know that. If someone wrongs you, you can't have fellowship with them. And that should really be an agonizing thing for each of us. That we are to love those who are members of our church. And it ought to be just pure agony for us to lose the fellowship with a member that we once had. So when someone goes off to sin, in sin, it's like being cut off from that fellowship of a family member. And you know how miserable that is. I mean, none of us likes to be at odds and have contingents that are going on within the family. And so we, re we seek the restoration of that erring brother because we love them and we want that peace and harmony that we had before. And when you restore your brother, you have that harmony once again. And if you can't restore them, then that person is lost to you. And that's what the Bible is showing us is a really agonizing position. We don't want Christians that we've loved and worshipped with and been a part of the body of Christ to be away from us 
We want them all to have fellowship with us. So we seek that restoration. Now, thirdly, we talked about the responsibility of discipline, and that responsibility falls on the people of the church. And that part of the sermon was to talk about personal responsibility in church discipline, that the process begins with you. When you've been harmed or you see another person of the church that has gone against the Lord and against the church and has got into sin, it's your responsibility to go to that person and tell them that they've sinned and in all humility encourage them to repent of it. Well, that means that you have to have some authority in your life, that you can't go to a sinning brother and tell them about their sin if you are also a sinning brother or sister. That you have to guard your own life so that you're qualified to speak to others about sin. Well, the worst thing that could happen to you is to go and confront someone with their sin and then to have them throw your sins back at you. And so you have the responsibility of being a self-examined, confessed Christian that's done his very best to remove sin in your own life so that you can help others to remove sin from theirs. And no one is to ever use the excuse, and this happens sometimes, well, I can't go talk to that person because I know there's some things that are not right in my life either. That's not an excuse. You're, you're, to, be, you're to be self-examined. You're to be qualified to go and talk to someone about their sins so that you can help them. Now, fourthly, we looked at this, and that is that we are to respect the process of discipline. And these verses give us that process, that it starts with a personal action. When you see a sin, you go to the one who sins and tell them that they have offended and try to bring that person to repentance. And hopefully, that's as far as it goes, that then the matter's settled and you don't have to do anything else. But sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Another step has to be taken, and that's when you take another person with you or you take a couple of people with you, and they go and they hear the matter and they encourage that person to repent. Now, those witnesses are with you for the purpose of hearing the reaction of the offender. They're to judge whether the complaint is a genuine one, and then they're to witness how that offending person reacts to the accusation. And if that first step didn't work when you went alone, then hopefully this is the one that will work. But again, the scriptures show us that this doesn't always work either. And so Jesus outlines for us a third step. In verse 17, he said, And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. Now there's the stage where more people get involved. If leadership is not already involved, then this is the step that brings the leadership into the dispute, and they help settle it. And that adds more weight to the, to the necessity of repentance. And if the person hasn't seen it already, how serious their sin is, then having the entire leadership of the church and all the membership of the church approach them with this and let them know that this is harmful to the body of Christ, that, that ought to be a strong incentive when they see that sin has been so upsetting to the entire body. But we also learn here that sometimes that is not enough, and the person still doesn't repent. So what do you do? Well, if all, all the attempts to restore the person have been unsuccessful, all the previous steps have been taken and they didn't yield the desired result, then you have no choice but to take this next step. And this is the hardest one there is to take. And it's one that we surely hope that we don't have to take until there is just no other remedy. 
Now, I like what one member said to me recently. Uh, someone in the church had gone into sin, and we tried to deal with that person, and they hadn't yet responded. And so this member said to me, I don't want to leave one stone unturned in my efforts to help that person. And that's what we have to do. But when all the stones have been turned over and there is no relief, then there is no choice but to take this next step, a painful step, and that is to remove the person from the church. Jesus said, But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now at that point, a person has shown that he might not even be a Christian. And what Jesus is saying here is we're to make that assumption about a person that if they've been confronted with sin and all these steps have been taken and they still refuse to repent, then, then we are to assume that that person is not really a born-again child of God. And he says you have to treat that person like, like he's not a Christian. And Christians cannot be, uh, a person who's not a Christian rather, cannot be a member of the church. So if people continue in their sins, they won't repent. They become a cancer in the body. And if nothing is done about that sin, it fosters an atmosphere for more sin. And Jesus says here, you can't have that in the church. They have to be put out. And so what you do is you treat them as unbelievers. Now, this is the point where I left off last week. And I promised that I would give you a scriptural example of how serious is how serious offenses in the church can become and the drastic measures that sometimes have to be taken to right the wrong. Now, for this example, take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is the final step of church discipline in action. Now, it might not actually be the final step because you may go through this and the person repents. That's what you hope for. Forgiveness and restoration might be yielded from this step. And in fact, in this case, in 1 Corinthians, that is what happened. So if this step had not been taken, there wouldn't have been repentance because the sin never would have been confronted. Now, now sadly, most churches are really just stuck at this point. They have ongoing sin in the church because they don't tra take the drastic measures to purify the body of Christ. And so we look here at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and Paul is dealing with a very serious sin in the Corinthian church. There was a man that was having an affair with his stepmother. Now, that was a reprehensible sin. There was no excuse for this. In fact, it was an indefensible sin because we'll notice here that Paul says that even the Gentiles in Corinth, those heathens that didn't worship the true God, they had more sense than this to know that it was wrong. Now, people today think that sexual sins and sexual orientation, that's off limits, and we're not to talk about that. Well, Paul had something to say about it. These are sins that are not permitted. 1 Corinthians 5, verse number 1, he says, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. This is not a hidden sin. He said, it's known. People know about this. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Even the Gentiles won't do this. He says in verse 2, And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he would, that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. So here is this man in the church. He's having sexual relations with his stepmother, and the Corinthian church would not do anything about it. 
And they were actually somewhat proud of it, as if this man's libido it's, it was legendary. And so they're just making light of this. And Paul says, you're puffed up about it. He means that you're arrogant about it. You're not mourning about this. There's a terrible sin that's taking place among you, and you're not sad about it. You're not broken up about it. You're not trying to do anything about it. Now look at verse 4. He, he's upset at their reaction to the sin. And so he commands that something must be done. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Paul said, get that man out of the church. Purge him from the church. He is like leaven. Now, I wish I had time to go into a detailed explanation of what all that means, but to put it to you very simply, leaven in Scripture is a type of sin. Leaven is like a little bit of yeast that you put into bread dough. And when you put the yeast in, it goes throughout the entire loaf, and all the loaf is affected by it. And what he's telling us here is that when you let sin into the church, everybody is affected by it. And so Paul says, get the sin out. Why? Because Christ was sacrificed for sin. Do you get what he's saying here? I mean, if you have qualms about church discipline and you think, well, we ought not to take a step like this, then just remember, he says to do this because Christ died for sin. Sin put the Savior on the cross. And this is so serious that Paul says what needs to be done is this person must be delivered to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, that means that you turn this person over to the devices of Satan, that he comes out from under the protection of the church, and God says, let's let Satan afflict him for a while. Now, that may seem a little bit puzzling to you, but do you know that God does protect us from much of the harm that Satan could cause us? As members of his church, when we're following his will, he protects us from a lot of the evils that Satan does. You look in the Old Testament, and it was Satan who lifted his hand against Job, and Job was afflicted with boils from his head to his feet. That's pretty serious, isn't it? Well, so is sin against a holy and righteous God. And so is the defilement of the Lord's body, which is the church, and so is the chastity of the bride of Christ. Now we go on to verse number 9. He said, I wrote into you an epistle, or I wrote another letter to you to talk to you about not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do ye not judge them that are within? But them that are within God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now what does that section mean? Well, it's telling us that the sin of a person inside of the church is actually far more serious than the sins of people that are outside of the church. 
Now, what he's talking about here, here, here he is. These people are living in the city of Corinth, a very wicked place. And all the time, they were around fornicators. All the time, they were around idolaters. They had temple prostitutes. They had all kinds of wickedness that was going on. The people that they fellowship with daily in their lives were those kinds of people. And he says, I'm not talking to you about them. I'm not speaking about those that are outside of the church because you have to have some fellowship with them. You have to because there's no way that you can win them to Christ unless you spend some time with them and you talk to them about the Lord. These are people that you go to work with. They're people that really don't know about the grace of God. They haven't yet heard about what Christ did for them to save them from their sins. They don't know about the consequences of their sin. And so they have no sense of what they're doing, that it's really the wrong thing to do. I mean, people live just about any way that they want to, and they don't think about a sins that they're committing against a holy God. So Paul says, I'm not talking about those kinds of people. They don't, they don't know these things yet. So you walk freely among them. And this is what we have to be sure of, that out in the world, when we have fellowship with these kinds of people, that the purpose of doing that and spending time with them is to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a goal that we have. We talk to sinners about the Lord. Now, we can do that on the outside of the church, but we can't do it on the inside of the church. He says, you have to put that person out. You can't have fellowship with that kind of person. If a person wants to bring sin into the body, he says, you can't have it. You've got to put that person out, and you can't have any fellowship with them. Now, what we have to do is we have to emphasize the deadly seriousness of their sin and the danger that it poses to the body of Christ. That the sanctity and the purity of the Lord's body is always paramount because Christ must have the preeminence. Now, do you see what this does and what the contrast is here? The meaning here, it doesn't say exclude them from the church and then go to lunch with them. It doesn't mean exclude them from the inside of the church and then on the outside of the church, keep your friendships. Keep everything going like it was. Do like you always did, just like nothing happened. Well, how would continuing fellowship outside of the church show the seriousness of their sin? Now, what this is supposed to be is shocking to the person. This is to awaken that person that, no, you cannot continue in your sin. You can't act as if sin doesn't matter. Now, people on the outside, they aren't saved. This this kind of thing wouldn't make any difference to them, but to that person who has been inside the church, who has been in fellowship with the people of God, this is done in order to have an impact on them. And this is why Paul says, I'm not talking about outsiders, I'm speaking of the insiders, that you cannot have fellowship with a disciplined church member because it undermines the discipline. So Paul says, put that person away from you. But remember, This is after the steps have been taken. This is after the process has been followed with all diligence. All efforts have been made to try to restore that person. And if he refuses to heed the warnings of the church, if he's indifferent about his sin, then we're not to tolerate that person any longer. He becomes an affront to Christ and to his church. But remember again, it's after the steps. You don't skip the steps. You don't go directly to this step 
You don't skip the rest of the process because the whole idea is to bring that person back and bring them into the fellowship again. But if you continue to have fellowship outside, it'll never show the seriousness of their sin. And so if they refuse to repent, if they scorn the rebuke, if they continue to reproach the name of Christ in the church, then what do you do? He says you put them out. You have no company with them. And this is the point that is so sorely missed. Even if a church does get to this far, does get to this point, they go ahead and they treat the offender as if nothing happened. The previous friendships are too strong. They don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And so they just go on as if nothing happened. But Jesus says you can't do that. If a person is removed from the fellowship, you don't go out and have a sandwich with them. You don't invite them into your home to have the same kind of fellowship that you had before. You, you don't do that. Treat them in the same as if they're walking in the Spirit. Is that being unkind to them? Not at all. Because when you invite that person into your home and they're living in sin, you're putting your seal of approval on their wicked lifestyle. Now, it doesn't mean you don't love them. It doesn't mean you don't care about them. It means that you cannot carry on business as usual. You can't apply the status quo. That you have to lovingly tell them that you cannot fellowship with them if they will not repent. Now, the reaction that you'll get sometimes to that is they'll say, Boy, you sure are holier than thou. But you're only doing what Christ said. You're only doing what the apostles said. And if they don't like it, tell them to take it up with Christ and take it up with the apostles because surely they are holier than them. So when you put the person out, the idea is that they miss the fellowship. They miss the sanctifying fellowship of the people of God. They really do need to see the seriousness of what they've done. Now, we can talk all day about the desire to remove sin. We can discuss this in theory. We can all agree that, yes, it is right to discipline people. But all of us also have to agree that sin is not intangible, that it manifests itself. And the only way that you can get rid of sin is to get rid of the sinner. And so if the person does not repent, we have a clear command here from both Jesus and Paul to expel that person. Now, most people look at this as just very, very hard. They think it's unchristian. But you have the founder of Christianity himself telling us what we need to do in these circumstances in order to shock people into doing what's right and bring them to repentance. And if this doesn't do it, then we assume that person never was a child of God anyway. And so we treat them as unbelievers. Now, Paul also gave us the same teaching in some other scriptures. First Timothy chapter 1 he said to Timothy, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went, on be, uh, went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now those were two people that were in the church, and Paul said, I'm using them as an example. They didn't walk the way that they were supposed to walk. They would not repent of their sins. And so I delivered them to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. 
Second Thessalonians, he said, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. In verse 14, And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Now, do you think that Paul made allowances for fellowship outside of the church? How toothless is the bite of discipline if we don't think that church authority rules us everywhere. Put them out, he says. Put them out that they learn not to blaspheme. And that's what a person does. When he rejects the counsel of the individual, when he rejects the agreement of the two or three that have called him to repentance, when he rejects the judgment of the church and of the leadership, then he has blasphemed Christ. That's clear. This is the word of God. Well, what's the result if we do this? Well, we get a pure church. If our hearts are right and our motives are right, we get a pure church. I mean, we discipline for the good of the individual, and we also do it for the good of the church. Well, is that the end of it? Is this person never to be heard from again? Well, I don't think so. I mean, God doesn't intend for us just to forget about them. And it happens sometimes in church members, I mean, church families, rather, that sometimes a member of your family might be guilty of a sin that they won't repent of, and they've been members of the church, the church that you're in, and the church says, well, they have to be put out because they won't repent of their sins. What do you do with that? They're in your family members. They are your family members. How are you going to avoid seeing them? Well, you may not be able to. But here's what you need to do. You can see them, but make sure that each time that you do see them, that you tell them to repent. That you keep reminding them of the sin, and either they will repent or they'll get sick of you. And they'll say, you can't come over anymore, because this is all you ever want to talk about. So don't let them think their sin doesn't matter. Respect the process of discipline. Let it do its work. The Lord knows how to purge his church. He knows what's best for his church. He knows how to bring an offender back to him. He knows all of this. And we get it directly from the mouth of the founder of the church. So we ought not to pretend that we have a better idea than this. And this is the way many churches react today. We have a better idea. We don't deal with sin in this way. We don't talk about sin because we don't want the the issue to come up. We just don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, you can't have a better idea than Christ about how to run the church. Now, do you remember this quote that I gave you from the first message? John L. Dagg, who was the Southern Baptist, first writing theologian, said this, When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. What is lack of discipline? If we don't do this, what is it? It's disobedience. Now it becomes disobedience on the entire church. The whole church is involved in disobedience if we don't do what Christ says. Now, we need to consider the book of Revelation when we think about this. In chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation, there were seven churches that Christ spoke a personal word to. And John was told to write these things down and to send these words of Christ to those seven churches. The book of Revelation was actually a letter that was written that was sent on a circuitous route to reach seven churches that were in Asia Minor. And six of those churches had very serious disobedience as a part of what they did. 
And so Jesus spoke to the Ephesian church, and he commended them for some good things that they were doing, but then he brought out a complaint. And he said in Revelation 2, verse 5, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. He spoke to the church at Pergamos, and this was a church that permitted false doctrine into the church. They hadn't purged the church. And so Jesus said, you had better repent of this. You better straighten it out or I will come and fight against you. At the church of Sardis, he said, your works are not perfect before God. He said, repent or else I'll come to you like a thief and you won't know when I'm coming. And then there was that church at Laodicea. And that was the church that's very much like the modern church today. This was a church that let anything go. They never talked about sin. They let sin into the, into the membership of the church. They didn't really care what went on. So they let sin in everywhere. They never did anything about it. And Jesus said about them, you are a sick church. And you'd better repent or I will chastise you. Now do you see a common thread that's running through all of these warnings? God wants a pure church. He will not tolerate sin. And so he said to the church at Ephesus, that first one, he said, what I'll do to you is I will remove your candlestick if you will not repent. You know what that means? It means that he would take away their privilege of being one of his churches. Now Christ will not tolerate sin for long. What he does and what he did with those churches is that he gives space to repent. He gives the opportunity for repentance. But when there is no repentance, then the church can no longer be counted as one of his churches. So you see what it's all about here? We put the whole church in danger by allowing sin to go on. If I don't preach against your sin, and we just let anybody do anything that they want to do, we are in danger of his action against the entire body, and we could be considered no longer his body to do his work. He removes our candlestick. That's possible if we don't do something about sin. So the issue here is sin and its holiness. That sin is not an ethereal thing that can never be touched, but sin is alive, it's real, it's tangible, and it's seen in the lives of God's people, and we are to do something about that sin. Something must be done, and it's not our option to be complacent about this and not deal with the issue of sin and holiness. So Jesus says... Let that person that will not repent be to you as a heathen and a publican. And Paul said, purge out the sin because Christ was sacrificed to put away sin. And so we don't honor the name of Christ when we don't deal with sin. And that's why we preach against it. That's why we insist that something must be done about it. It's not pleasant, but it is Christ's command. And we need to understand that Christ and his church, his commands, are higher than our personal feelings. A desire to be like Christ ought to move us forward and to urge us on that we'll be chaste and holy, that we'll be the bride of Christ that he wants us to be. And so we are to obey him. And this is why he said, if you don't, then I will discipline you. Like children, you will receive my love, my care, and my protection. But like children, you'll also be disciplined if you do not obey me.
Now, let me finish with this last scripture from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Now that scripture is given to show us that Christ loves us enough, God loves us enough that he will chasten us to try to bring us back when we go into sin. He will not leave us alone. And if we really love people the way that we should, we won't leave them alone when they go into sin. We want everybody to receive God's blessings. We want everybody to be in the center of God's will. We can't ignore sin for simply this reason. We love Christ too much, and we love you too much to let it go on. And so we will deal with it when it becomes a problem, because this is what the Scriptures tell us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We can't find something better for us to do than what's written here. This is given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus speaking, the Apostle Paul speaking, and this is the Word of God. There are no better ideas than what's spoken in the Bible. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to uphold truth. We come to these particular scriptures and we don't skip over them. We don't act as if they're not here. But we have to take the whole counsel of the Word of God and teach it all as it comes to us. And though it may not be pleasant at times and it may be difficult for some to grasp, it is your Word and we're to learn it and to obey it. Help us to do that, Lord. I pray for someone here today who uh, is a Christian and they're maybe in some sin now. We haven't found out about it. We don't know about it. Maybe there are grudges that are being held between people in the church and there are offenses that have gone on. And it only hurts the church. We suffer because of it. And so I ask you, Lord, to bring people back to repentance. And may we lovingly, may we lovingly deal with people who are in sin and try to help them and recover them so they may receive your blessings. Then we pray for those that are here today that someone is not saved, that the best path to choose is salvation in Jesus Christ, to respond to the gospel message and give our heart completely to Jesus Christ and he'll save us from our sins and then we'll understand the joy that we have of being in obedience to him and why these things are so important. Lord, speak to us today. Help us that we may learn your word and act accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.